Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Karen Rader and Victoria Kane about their really, really well-written and really fascinating new book, Life on Display, Revolutionizing U.S. Museums of Science and Natural History in the 20th Century. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2014. So it was a real pleasure um, to talk with both co-authors, in part because the story that they're telling about transformations of museum culture and cultures of display and research from the 19th to the 20th century in America is itself really interesting, I think really, really important um, as well for understanding science education and museum culture right now and for taking lessons from this history. And it's also full of some fabulous stories and really interesting characters, uh, owls and grasshoppers and brine shrimp, uh, along with some really interesting people. At the same time, in and of itself, the fact of collaboratively authoring and collaboratively researching a book, not co-editing, but rather writing together, is really, really interesting, I think, from the perspective of the craft of writing and the craft of research. And so one of the things that you'll hear us talking about toward the beginning of the conversation, but really at various stages throughout, um, was that craft. So what can it look like? What did it look like for Karen and Victoria to write this together? Um, And really very much um, for me, this is a model of what it can look like to do collaborative work. I think much more so than um, we historians, and I count myself among um, that group, typically do. So I think it's a it's a fabulous book. It's a fascinating book, and it's also really um, a, an interesting and very informative introduction to what it can look like to work together as authors. So it was a pleasure for me to talk with them, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks so much for listening. I'm here today to talk with Karen Rader and Victoria Kane about their really fabulous new book, Life on Display. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Karen and Victoria. And thanks not only for an awesome book and for being with me today, but also for being willing to talk together about this collaboratively written book. I'm really excited about that aspect of it as well. So welcome. Thank Thanks, you. Carla. So could um, each of you start us off, as is kind of traditional for the channel, by saying just a little bit about what brought you to the field? So how did you come to focus on the history of science and the history of American science and perhaps museums in the first place? And maybe, Victoria, you could start us off. Absolutely. Um so entirely by accident, actually, um, which I think is often the case for historians of science. I, uh, I had done history and literature in college, um, mostly because I thought I was going to be an English major, but then it turned out English majors didn't read or write stories. Uh, at least when I was an undergraduate, they spent most of their time dealing with theory. So I wound up doing history and literature instead. And, uh, 
And from there, went to graduate school in history. And my first year had to write a graduate paper on a topic involving Americans and nature. And I was in graduate school in New York at the time and walked down the street to the Natural History Museum um, and thought it was just the weirdest thing in the world. Um, <laughs> and I did an article or excuse me, a, uh, a paper on dioramas. And I just I loved it. I loved the I mean, first of all, museums are terrific at keeping everything, including all of the correspondence of um, everyone involved in working and producing exhibits. So it was a way to kind of forge into all these topics I was really interested in. History of art, the history of exploration, the history of biology, the history of philanthropy, uh, plus all of these kind of internecine, like who was sleeping with who, and you know, the fact that you know these guys are like rollicking drunks, and they're out in the field in Africa, and like I mean, it was just, it was <laughs> it was basically like getting to read other people's mail, except it was legal because they were dead um <laughs> and i thought this is this is great this is what i want to do <laughs> so for me it was uh it was it was almost entirely by accident but it's been a it's a it's a very happy accident <laughs> yeah karen and i think i think accident uh is describes virtually everyone i know in the field but in a way my accident was born of circumstance i was i studied both science and history as an undergrad at loyola college and in my study of science uh, at loyola i became aware i would say kind of in the more advanced stages of the process that the kinds of things that you were learning to get the a's and b's on the tests wasn't really what science was about <laughs> that in fact uh, science as a body of knowledge as a kind of end product was less interesting and um, and less full than the story of science as a process. And so, for instance, in a molecular biology class, you know, I found myself more interested in the little sidebars and the textbooks describing the scientists and got kind of interested in Watson and Crick and started reading the double helix, which, of course, talk about reading other people's mail, <laughs> right? Um, it's just this total, you know, backstory account of, of how science gets made. And so I became interested in that side of science at the same time that I had a set of really wonderful history teachers at Loyola um, because of the core Jesuit liberal arts curriculum, uh, I was able to kind of take classes in which I discovered that history was really more than, uh, as they say, one damn thing after another, but it was really kind of stories about people and the contributions they make and that, that there are lots of different ways to tell history, to tell stories. So I think kind of uh, Victoria and I share an interest in stories and really um, what in retrospect I didn't identify at the time, but I now identify as micro history was kind of of um, a core turning point for me. So I read Carlo Ginsburg's The Cheese and the Worms mm -hmm. and ultimately ended up writing a kind of micro history of science as my first book. So my book on the history of um, the laboratory mouse is a kind of micro history. But of course, as all uh, trajectories go, the pendulum swings one way and then it swings the other. <laughs> and so I became really interested in kind of in particular around the mouse sort of stories about popular uses and popular understandings of animals. And that became a wedge into kind of trying to think about how wider angles, um, wide, wide angled lenses 
really can help you also reveal bigger trends and make bigger connections. So when I came to this project, I was, uh, Victoria and I were meeting together at a moment where we had a lot of shared interests. Um, but in, for me in particular, that wide angle lens was something I was interested in pursuing. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. So I'll say just a little bit for listeners about the nature of the book that we're talking about, and then we'll move on from there. So later in or in the 19th century, American nature and science museums, and so in the book, we'll um, talk a little bit about um, nature museums and science museums and the ways that they came together and the ways that they moved apart. But in the 19th century, these museums all possessed collections of specimens, and those collections helped define the institution of the museum itself. Now, later in the 20th century, as you both show in the book, displays, not just collections of specimens, but displays became just as, or as we move through the story, sometimes much more important for American museums. And the book charts um, a kind of revolution, um, as you put it, I think, at several points in the book, in 20th century American science education and culture as a way of making sense of this transformation in museums of of, um, various sorts, science and nature. Okay, so you both talked a little bit about how you came to um, the sort of general field of, you know, interest in museums and interest in popular science. But you mentioned earlier um, in the book that the book is also, it's not just about this topic. It's also, um, I think, really fascinatingly, the fruit of nearly a decade of collaborative work. Now, since collaborative work and collaborative authorship is still kind of the exception rather than the rule in history writing, right? This isn't how a lot of us are trained um, in graduate school. Let's talk a little bit about that aspect of the process. So how, just to get us started, how and why did you decide to write this together as a collaboration? And uh, Victoria, maybe um, if you could get us started, that would be great. Well, I think, uh, I mean, speaking of happy accidents, I, uh, I think it had a lot to do with geography as much as anything else. Um, So I I was in graduate school at Columbia and Karen was teaching at Sarah Lawrence at the time. And I, um, I think I was in like my fourth year in graduate school and working on my dissertation. And I, um, had wonderful mentors and wonderful historians that I was working with, but almost no one who knew directly about what I was actually writing about. And I was casting around for people to discuss this topic with. And, uh, and I had just gone to my first academic conference and somebody mentioned Karen Rader's name was like, Oh, I think she's working on something about museums. You should look her up. So I cold called her. Um, and I remember (laughs) you took me out to lunch, um, you know, and it was like, it was like you know, sort of two steps up from Subway and sitting on the <laughs> side, like in a sidewalk cafe, you know, in this New York suburb um, and just being so happy to find somebody who was also able to talk about the same thing, the same completely esoteric things that I really cared about at that moment yeah. and the di- institutional dynamics. And then we, we gave, um, we went back and forth in terms of, you know, sources and papers and things like that. And then eventually we gave a paper together in England um, and Manchester and wrote an article. 
And the experience was so positive that I think, you know, that was sort of how it came to be. Maybe you have a, a different recollection. It's, no, it's no. sort of like describing like <laughs> your first date, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it is interesting. I have, I agree with everything you've said and I, and I recall the same things, but I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, we lead such, especially with regard to our research, we lead such scholarly, such um, isolated scholarly lives, you know, like the, the people that know about the things that we know about, sometimes you can count on one hand, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not and the that you care about those. Things, yeah. <laughs> you can count on even fewer fingers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I do, I do remember uh, it, it sort of initially meeting Victoria and, and having the conversation she describes, but then as we went on, initially we were working on separate projects and, you know, we would have a series of conversations where we would say, you know, this is how my part of the story is going. How's your part of the story going? And we were finding there were really pretty significant overlaps. Yeah. And so I think it appealed to both of us, uh, the, the prospect of kind of rather than trying to, um, you know, um, pound these accounts out in isolation to kind of work with each other and talk with each other and see if we could de- create something that was synthetic, that brought these things together. And again, I think that that brings us back to kind of the wide angle lens and really wanting to, you know, not just have the people who you can count on one hand get it, but really being able to kind of speak to a broader audience, both in uh, historical time and and also, um, you know, different disciplinary specializations. So Victoria really coming from the world of cultural history and uh, museum studies and me coming from history of science, I think that brings different perspectives and the account as a result, at least we hope, will engage all those communities in different ways. Yeah, so and I that's think- actually, I want to follow up on your point, Karen. I think for me, that was another really enriching thing. I mean, there is the, the delight in having someone else get it, but there's also the sense of, I, I think, um, again, I remember a very early conversation in this process where we were both talking about what we thought were the central and core issues. Yeah, And you were like, just, you know, research is so central to the, and I was like, really? I just don't feel like, and then I was like, but it's really institution building. And you're like, I don't know. And then I literally remember we each called each other a week later. <laughs> and it was one of these, you know, I was thinking about what you said, and I think you're right. Yeah. Oh, you know, and that, that kind of the disciplinary training, you know, I have a a serious art history background and Karen, obviously with a more scientific background that has made a big difference, but also really thinking about the bigger questions that matter to those different disciplines. And, and the fact that, I mean, I think we're lucky enough to come from disciplines with, or sort of sub disciplines within history where process and, uh, relationships between um, sort of the institutional jockeying um, and the kind of definition of terms and staking out of terrain really mattered. Um, And so I think those themes show up in our book over and over again. Um, Yeah. And and that was fun to see. So speaking of process and relationships, um, I was just in a cab in New Delhi with Simon Schaffer, where he was talking about the actual physical process of Leviathan and the air pump, right? How that collaboration practically worked, you know, writing letters back and forth. So I would uh, like to actually bring that question to the two of you in terms of the practicalities of writing together, right? The sort of the craft of this, was this a matter of uh, each one of you writing certain parts? 
Was it, you know, writing emails? Like how practically did this work for you guys? And what, what were some of the maybe notable elements of that that you'd like to share for others who might be interested in doing a collaborative, not just, again, co-editorship, but collaborative writing? So maybe, yeah. um, Karen, could you start us off? Sure. So I think what Victoria said about geography being part of the equation is really uh, was really kind of the start of it. I think kind of we built a base from meeting and talking face to face. And we were both in New York doing research at the American Museum of Natural History. So sometimes our uh, our eyes were literally passing over the same stuff, the same pages, the same people, the same archivists. So kind of building from there uh, when Victoria stayed in New York and was working at NYU and I moved here to Richmond, Virginia. We initially started, uh, we continued initially kind of the uh, seeing one once another, would you say it's about once a year or every uh, once every six months or something? Yeah, in the beginning? I think that's about yeah. right. Yeah. And then as my kids got older and as uh, Victoria herself had kids, I think it really evolved into something much more virtual. And all I can say is thank God for cell phones and the initial friends and family <laughs> plans because <laughs> I, I remember the moment when you called me and said, you're on my friends and family plan. Am I on yours? Yes. <laughs> God knows how many minutes we've logged on the phone. Um, but then oh I think... And, and that's actually something that I think is really important. It is yeah. so much easier to collaborate. I mean, God bless Dropbox. Yeah, right? that's that like, going to be my next or, <laughs> but, but we've made mistakes along the way. And of course, the technology has evolved along with the collaboration. So... I remember when the when the uh, annual reports of the American Museum went online. Yeah. And so finally, it was like both of us could look at them and it wasn't just me, you know, yeah. or you having to schlep up to New York or, right. you know, vice versa in terms of the Smithsonian. And right. then things like, you know, oh, EndNote, there's an online option, huh? Yeah. You know, because you, you would have these sort of technological glitches where you'd be trying to share software and then one person would wake one change and all of a sudden it'd throw everything into chaos. So yeah. we've been very lucky. And I think that, you know, We've been able to make use of technology to its fullest, um, and it's yeah. really enriched. I mean, it's real. I'm not sure the book would have been possible, yeah. uh, you know, or at least it would have taken twice as long and been twice as painful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, too, um, as far as to kind of segue into the writing piece, we kind of experimented with working together on a smaller uh, basis uh, in the paper that Victoria talked about uh, in Manchester. And I think that was a good thing because we kind of got uh, a sense of one another's uh, style and, and ways and of strengths, work. too. And strengths, yeah. And I think I think at the, sort of after that happened and that went well, uh, we broached the idea with one another of kind of continuing on. And and we did sort of have initial conversations about the structure of the project and, and uh, making sure that uh, we both understood that this was going to be co-written. This was kind of what we both felt very committed to. Yeah. So um, even though we bring different bodies of knowledge and expertise and, and sort of research, archival research, that we would feel free to write and then rewrite and rewrite. And I want to emphasize rewrite, rewrite. <laughs> one another's accounts. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, 
I think that was initially agreed upon, but you know, you have to start somewhere and certainly we're both not co-writing everything. So we had large conversations about uh, the structure of the book and kind of ways to split it up. And then we wrote individual pieces, exchanged them and radically, you know, wrote and rewrote to the point where I really think uh, the final product, we could not tease out who wrote what from the beginning. Yeah, Um, I think that's right. And I think that actually ended up being true in terms of research, too, because as we would rewrite and move things around, then all of a sudden you'd be like, oh, we've got a yawning gap here. Or one of us would start down an intellectual road. Oh, I found this thing by G.K. Chesterton, and I think it says this. And then I would go and read the essay, and I'm like, I don't think it means what you think it means. And then both of us would end up reading a lot more G.K. Chesterton than either of us had ever (laughs) anticipated reading. (laughs) And then, you know... And then one of us would be like, okay, well, I'll take a stab at it. And then the other person would re-edit it. And then yeah. it would get re-edited again. And then it would get moved from the conclusion to the introduction. <laughs> so, again, you know, I mean, it, it took a lot longer than it would. Yeah. But I think ultimately a book is infinitely better for the process of collaboration. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you both. So let's get into it, right? So let's get really into the book. So the book argues for a century long, and I think these are um, the words of the book, a renegotiation of the relationship between display, research, and education in American museums of nature and science. And so in a series of seven chapters, you take us through this really beautiful narrative and this beautiful story full of arguments as well um, that chronicles how and why and, and the texture of that happening. The first chapter looks at a young generation of reformers between the 1890s and the 1910s who were inspired by something, uh, this transnational movement called the New Museum Idea Movement. So they were arguing that museums should reach all citizens and that the best way to do this was through display. So let's get into the book by talking a little bit about this New Museum Idea. Um, Karen, can you kind of explain or, or, you know, either one of you, but I'll just name Karen and then you, you guys go talk. <laughs> what, what is this um, new museum idea and in what way was this speaking to and, and speaking back from the larger context of science education at the time? So I think it's really, um, as we talk about in the introduction, this sort of initial sense of the museum going back longer than just the 19th century, but, you know, really, um, ancient times, right? Sort of ideas about collections not being the basis or not being the sole basis on which to um, evaluate the usefulness of the of the museum, but rather thinking about the ways in which museums can bring together three, as you said, sort of three goals, collections, research, and education. And this is something, now, it's something that to call it the new museum idea, it sounds like something that museums do now. So I think it's kind of to go back and look at that moment where this was really a radical statement, wouldn't you say, Victoria? Yeah, I would. And yeah, and so um, this kind of bringing together of these things and trying to convince themselves, really, and their colleagues, <laughs> because uh, this was something that was new and this was kind of reform generated that this was going to be a good idea moving forward, that became kind of the basis uh, of the thing that kind of sparked the revolution. Yeah, I mean, and it's a practical revolution, but it's an ideological revolution too, because it's predicated on this idea that the public matters, that knowledge needs to be disseminated um, 
to the public. Certainly there's a top-down element, but there's also like an engagement element. I mean, Brooke Good himself would talk about how the museum needed to meet the needs of the mechanic and the factory operator and the day laborer as much as the professional man and the man of leisure. And that was profoundly different than what you know, had been done in the past in museums. I mean, they were a far, far way from the princely cabinet of curiosities. Mm. And I think what the new museum idea did was create a foundation on which everybody thought they could agree. But then when it came to actually putting it into practice, it raised all sorts of questions. I mean, okay, do the public deserve a place in these institutions that have previously been devoted either to kind of showing princely power or scientific research? Um, and if they do, what is the place of the public supposed to be? What are the public's needs? How do they get met? Who gets to decide the answers to these questions? Um, and so it ends up, you know, this this moment where everybody seems to be on board in terms of like, yeah, we're going to recreate these museums and they all agree they're going to do it. And then as soon as they say, okay, but how, how do we implement this, this revolution? I mean, that's, that's where the hard and the interesting story starts. And in fact, almost immediately, it leads to a set of paradoxes that kind of uh, we both of us are very interested in and kind of animate the uh, the rest of the book, which is this kind of paradox of, well, once you open it up, uh, that is, once you open the museum up, you're kind of um, you're kind of having to pay attention to what the public wants and what the public wants to see at the same time that kind of practically speaking, the people who are working in these museums, and these aren't, you know, sort of big named people. These are sort of the, uh, one of the things we really uh, were committed to was kind of getting a sense of not just what the new museum idea was uh, as an idea, but what it was in practice. And so these are people who are having to catalog specimens, make displays, answer letters from the public, try to figure out whether to take in, you know, Aunt Annie's shell collection. <laughs> or yeah. Dead pets. No, I mean, you know, sending, right? like they're pets. writing letters back and forth yeah. and they're talking about the fact that like they don't get a chance to do science because they have to write, you know, poor 12-year-old Jesse Keel and explain that faces don't petrify and the rock she found is probably <laughs> not a petrified human face. And so on the one of, hand, yeah. they're excited to do that. But on the other hand, there's this sense of incredible loss. Like, wow, I thought I was going to be a paleontologist. And instead, I'm writing a 12. And like, what does this mean for me as a scientist? What does this mean for science in general? Right. So the opening up was happening at the same time that the beginning stages of professionalization was happening and kind yeah. of concerns about coherence over educational message and professional standards. All of that is kind of happening uh, as a piece. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's a great paradox, not only of the progressive era, but really the 20th century in terms of knowledge. You have this sort of centralization of expertise and this incredible tightening of disciplinary boundaries. At the same time, everything is exploding and kind of democratizing and that education and knowledge is being made more and more and more accessible. And museums are right in the middle of that and trying to balance that tension throughout. 
And there's the, one of the um, things I really love about the book, and this is a really good example of it right here in the first body chapter, is it not only is really clear about leading us through the larger chronicle and the set of arguments that you guys are making, but there are also tons of really wonderful details and amazing anecdotes. And so there's a whole description in the first chapter of the kinds of gifts that the public oh, yeah. guys send to the museum, <laughs> like dog fleas and people's like pets and old shoes and like... I, there's one half chicken, half duck. And so it's sort of, Greeks were this is an amazing pops. archive here, right? <laughs> I mean, that was, but that was, it was such fun to go through these things and to read these curators' letters where they're trying to contend with this avalanche. Yeah stuff and they're you know they're they're trying to exercise the ghost of barnum right so they're like desperately turning away the freaks but then i mean even their own trustees keep showing up with like here's my dead saint bernard i want it to have pride of place in the main hall and when you do that then i'll give you a million dollars and this becomes a really important moment of the story too because as you're going to show um or at least as you know from my perspective as one reader right as um the end of the book shows even though there's this revolution that you're charting from the 19th to the 20th century, some of the most revolutionary elements of the kind of museum um, sort of explorations and experimentations that we're going to see in the 20th century actually resemble what's happening here in the 19th century in some Mm. really surprising and interesting ways. So there's an interesting cyclicity to Mm -hmm. this revolution, too, that I think is really important. So as we move through the book, um, you take us into, and and I I need to ask you just a little bit about this because I think Victoria mentioned dioramas at the very beginning, right, Um, of our conversation. I think um, maybe uh, maybe very briefly. Um, so the next chapter actually takes us into what's happening from 1910 to 1935. And this is the um, really proliferation of habitat dioramas in American natural history museums in this period. Now, this becomes important because what you, we see here is the ways that a rise of dioramas and exhibit halls, rather, um, really transform kind of the personnel involved in creating museum Mm. displays, right? So, um, Victoria, could you maybe start us off by saying a little bit about this rise of dioramas? Sort of for you, what's crucial for us to understand about the way that this is impacting exhibit halls, but also museum culture behind the scenes? Well, I think one thing to think about is when people started incorporating dioramas, they had this enormous promise. Um, They, I mean, all members of the museum community, curators who were committed to scientific research, uh, the curators and directors who were committed to education, um, the directors who were worried about money coming in, um, even preparators who until then had been kind of the janitors of the museum staff, preparators being the people who were in charge of preparing animals for exhibitions. So they were the ones who were dealing with like the cyanide and, you know, all of the the poisons that they used to preserve the stuff um, or the arsenic. Um they all thought dioramas were going to be the solution to the problem. Dioramas were going to further research in the sense that people are going to have to go out into the field to collect all kinds of specimens and the information necessary to build these very elaborate exhibits. They're going to further education because everybody loves them and they want to come in. And it's like the way that a movie blockbuster would open, you know, I guess not so much these days, but 10 years ago, um, (laughs) 
you know, they are attracting crowds that, you know, they will line up around the block. So they're really bringing people into the halls. And then people also thought that this is like, this is the ultimate in education. This is really, I mean, this is going to make people look scientifically. It's going to make them think scientifically. It's going to get them engaged and interested in science. So everybody's excited about dioramas. But then as dioramas get bigger, as the economy starts to flounder, as the true cost in terms of labor and staff and space uh, starts taking its toll in museums, um, and as they also upend the kind of established hierarchy. I mean, thanks to dioramas, um, preparators really go from being janitors to being quite important members of museum staffs. I mean, important enough that, in fact, that chief preparator at the American Museum of Natural History is actually paid more than the director of the museum. So from being this solution to everybody's problem of how do we balance research and education and display, turns out dioramas don't solve that problem. They just exacerbate it. They make people, they force people into taking sides. Like, are you somebody who supports dioramas or are you somebody who supports research? And I think, Um, I mean, if I can interrupt, I think one of the, this was one of the chapters that was the most challenging because we both know so much has been written, so many wonderful accounts, kind of micro histories of particular dioramas, Donna Haraway's work, uh, Mm -hmm. Teddy Bear Patriarchy, Karen Wonder's really amazing um, Mm -hmm. analysis And so I think so much of that work is about the ways in which dioramas as the most prominent museum displays of this period come to embody really important themes having to do with sort of nationalist nature and culture more so than having to do with nature in particular. So, uh, for example, in the American Museum display, youth, democracy, state, you know, right, these sorts of things. But I think as as I'm listening to Victoria talk, I'm, I'm kind of returning back to a conversation that we had about the ways in which, you know, we have no disagreement with that work, but certainly one of the things we were um, wanting to show more of is the ways in which these dioramas impacted the culture of the museum. Yeah. So one of the things Victoria is talking about right now is just that, just the, the ways in which it didn't matter which museum, whether you went to the very large, you know, American Museum of Natural History or the Natural History Museum in Davenport, Iowa or Denver or, right, all, all of these people were struggling with similar kinds of dynamics within their institutions about, okay, great, we're going to have these displays. Where are we going to get the money to build them? Where are we going to put them? Mm-hmm. Um, who's going to pay attention to what's in them and why. And initially, as Victoria is talking about, the the scientists are excited because they see this as a way of kind of a new form of science education. But as it becomes more and more clear that this is going to mean taking time away from cataloging, you know, collecting for research purposes, writing up articles, there's a whole dynamic that starts to get going uh, within the institution whereby sort of the drama of the diorama, as we call the chapter, is really the way in which that it heats up those tensions. Uh, mm-hmm. And those tensions become something that animates uh, what goes on in museum walls for generations to come. Yeah, so. that's right. 
So after, um, so thank you both very much. So after we have this um, really wonderful account of this, we move toward the late 1920s and the early 1930s in a context here where curators were worried that exhibits could actually get in the way of public education. So the third chapter looks at efforts to reform exhibition styles in this period and also pays really careful attention to the fragmentation and the experimentation that characterizes the kinds of displays that emerge in this period. And those displays range from um, a wire cage of, quote, trim up on their toes cockroaches um, <laughs> with entomologist Frank Lutz, his rattlesnake, um, exi- rattlesnake display where you can you know make the rattlesnake's tail shake to just all kinds of fabulous things happening here. So um, in this chapter, you both talk about the way that this transformation in exhibition style is actually responding to and is part of larger changes in interwar science and public education. So especially because this is also the moment where we see the rise of the science museum as part of this. Could you maybe um, speak briefly to these transformations in science and public education? What what do we need to know about that in order to understand what's happening um, with these exhibits? And Karen, maybe um, do you want to speak to that? Sure. So I think um, this is this is a moment where uh, sort of moving from educators dramatically reconceiving science education to it, to something where students are paying attention not just to content but kind of to a, a process, so kind of a Deweyan progressive era attention mm-hmm. to kind of process of learning, mm-hmm. um, but intersecting as well with kind of that in and of itself intersecting with trends about kind of ways to develop individuals as productive citizens. So that's a discourse that is, of course, rife with um, you know class and race, and so all of those things uh, in form that. But I, so one of the things we're trying to capture is, and part of what we tried to do was kind of, rather than have that discussion at a very large level, um, abstractly was kind of try to filter that through uh, interwar biology. So in biology, the way that this looked was civic biology, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea that there would be a, a curriculum in biology that would become the standard in textbooks that would basically teach students ways to understand the natural world that they could use to become better citizens. And I think maybe, Victoria, if you want to speak a little more to, to the science education piece during this period. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think you hit the nail on the head, Karen. I think that it is really about, you see the beginning of what after the war is called life adjustment biology, but this idea of biology in service to society, um, you know, and, and we want to create a healthier, more productive citizenry through biology. But that comes to be intention also with um, scientists who are doing really cutting edge research in museums as well. I mean, people who are really pioneering in animal behavior and psychology, um, and they want to get their research out there at the same time and educate people about the forefront of biology. And they want to position museums as a player in that kind of education as well. So you really have museums pushing two different ways of approaching the life sciences. Um, and the there's a good bit of conflict about how do we do this? But what everybody does agree on is that dioramas aren't getting the job done. They're not helping with either the kind of, um, you know, scientific society you know the, the life adjustment element nor are they helping 
in terms of displaying um, what's going on and what's happening in the lab. So there are all of these efforts to try to experiment and find new ways of representing the life sciences. Um, and I think, and- I think for both of us, the, the ways in which the strains in biology were intersecting with the strains in education, were intersecting with the trends in display, were very uh, instructive. For instance, we talk a lot in this chapter about ethology and animal behavior mm-hmm. at the American Museum, and you mentioned the, uh, the snake with the shaking tail, right? So this is a moment where uh, the sort of cutting edge of biology, the sort of animal, animal behavior paying, you know, not just um, looking at dead stuffed animals and how to, you know, systematize them, but looking at animal behavior and more active things that animals are doing with one another intersects with the uh, sort of World's Fair, right, um, interactivity yeah. emphasis. Uh, and that in and of itself intersects with progressive education, a kind of hands-on, right, student-centered learning. Right. And all of these things um, come to be embodied in different aspects of the work that's going on in the museum. That's right. The other the other major shift I think in that period is that you're really going from specimens to subjects. All of a sudden, you know, it's not shells in a case or even, you know, a moose in in a diorama, you're really trying to, museums are really making a push to think about science um, and present it in a much more comprehensive way and struggling with how to do that. Um, and science museums are finding themselves doing it much more successfully than natural history museums in part because they're just not burdened with the same kind of specimen load. Um, and so they can take risks and do um, things that natural history museums felt like they absolutely could not do thanks to their collections and also this vast, grand disciplinary tradition. Right. And chapter four actually really, really nicely looks at this divergence um, that you're charting between and that that you're just invoking um, now between science museums and natural history museums. And so um, in the post-war period, Right, science museums are focusing more on kind of hands-on displays and interactive stuff. You talk about Spooky the Owl. So speaking of <laughs> specimens to subjects, right? I mean, we have a yeah. named owl here who like rides in a car. Um, Can I just say, as an aside, how excited we are? I think I speak for Victoria that you're equally captivated by all of the Oh, fabulous! <laughs> Please, I'm just amazed that you read the whole book. Oh yeah, and you, one of the one of the awesome things too is that these like amazing. I don't know if this was self-conscious, right? Uh, but or I'm sure part of uh, this is at least partially deliberate. But at these moments where you're talking about, um, at least in some of these moments where you're talking about these dramatic changes and uh, really exciting moments in um, exhibit display, the illustrations in the book as well kind of punctuate this, right? Mm. So as we have this verbal image of this striking transformation, like Spooky the Owl, right, in the car and yeah. display, then um, right on that page you have the image that's bringing you into the visual experience of this display. So I thought that was really a brilliant um, choice in terms of the book design as well. I mean, in terms of the way both of you approached the design of the book and um, the interplay between text and image, there's also a really interesting way that that set of decisions speaks back to and informs the story that you're charting. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's totally awesome. Well, certainly it's something that you you think a lot about from a scholarly angle. And then I think much like our guys having to put their ideological, you know, 
ideology into practice, we were like, oh, wow, this pairing image and text, this is a lot harder than we thought. (laughs) (laughs) And it's partially harder because, as we all know, as historians, the archival record is incomplete. So, you know, we would find these amazing um, descriptions in annual reviews and or papers. and, Mm -hmm. And then we would go to look for an image and it just wouldn't be there. And I think it speaks a lot to, you know, as time went on, there were more and more pictures right. of displays, which also kind of uh, speaks to the argument of the book, because yeah. this was what was considered important. So we took a picture of it instead of, you know, um, just kind of sticking it in the basement until it rotted and then throwing it away, which is what a lot what happened to a lot of those early displays. Right. So as we move, thank you so much, um, both of you. So as we move forward, um, there's an entire chapter that I'm not going to ask you to speak too much about purely so that we can get to Brian Shrimp Ballet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but chapter five is um, is really great, and I want to just mark it for listeners. Um, this is a chapter that looks at what's happening during the kind of Sputnik moment. So science and natural history museums seize on this Sputnik moment, and the chapter looks at the late 1950s through the 1960s to try to convince the government to invest more in museums as kind of spaces of public education. And as museums, um, museum directors kind of hire a new generation of designers, and a lot of these designers don't have experience in the kinds of field research and the, you know those kinds of preparatory um, skills that previous um, design had. Instead, they're trained in art and architecture and industrial design. They start um, crafting new kinds of exhibits that are much more about storyline and that are much more narratively driven. And the chapter brings us into some really wonderful examples of this as well, like the Hall of Ocean Life, etc. And also talks about um, NSF funding. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of mention that and mark that for listeners. Um, and you, either one of you, um, as we you know move forward, can um, speak to that as well if you'd like. But we need to get to Brian Shrimp Ballet. <laughs> um, so, so we get to Brian Shrimp Ballet and Grasshopper Surgery as well, um, incidentally, um, in Chapter 6, which is this really lovely chapter called The Exploratorium Effect. So this chapter brings us into the work of Frank Oppenheimer and his Exploratorium. And this is, as you both put it in the book, an attempt to, among other things, democratize the museum experience and make scientific knowledge accessible. So in the late late 60s and early 70s, debates about science education start being really, really political. Um, and you take us into those debates. And you mark 1969 as the beginning of what you call the exploratorium effect. So can you take us into what's happening here um, by explaining, um, and maybe I'll, Victoria, I'll ask you to get us started. What is the exploratorium effect? And maybe can you introduce like, who is this Oppenheimer guy and what's up with the exploratorium? Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, Frank Oppenheimer, God, what a character, Um, you know, (laughs) um, an ousted physicist. Is that how you describe him? That's Um, probably the shortest uh, way to describe him. Yeah. You know, he 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 was the brother of Robert Oppenheimer um, and he had cut his teeth, um, you know, doing doing work um, in Cold War physics and then was sort of besmirched basically um, as a result of McCarthyism and a whole bunch, a host of other issues. So he goes and he works on a farm for a while in a tiny community in Colorado and the community doesn't have a science teacher and he ends up stepping in, loving it, being exceptionally gifted at it, um, developing all of these new methods which are based not only on his experience as a scientist but actually on his experiences 
effectively a ranch hand, um, taking lots of odds and ends and getting his students to build to experiment themselves and he takes this model of pedagogy this intensely hands-on way of approaching and thinking about science um, and applies it to the museum space which you know for all of the push button displays and the oh look we have a live animal has had really been limited to looking and and mostly not touching and not engaging um, with the exception of pushing buttons um, and so he comes up with a wholly different kind of model for an institution, a new museum paradigm, one that certainly had precedence. I mean, he's not working sui generis. And this is, I think, one of our larger points that, you know, his his exploratorium is something that people had been experimenting with bits and pieces of it for a long time. But he had the charisma and the bullheadedness maybe (laughs) and also certainly the contacts and kind of you know legitimacy to pull it together um well and i think as well i agree with all of that and i think that the um the piece that he brings that's missing before him is is and just this will underscore one of the things victoria is saying about kind of It's not sui generis. People had thought about experimenting before. People had thought about experiments in a museum. But kind of putting the visitor in the place of the experimenter, um, really kind of making the museum itself a kind of process of scientific experimentation is something that he brings to the picture as a scientist that ends up uh, transforming the enterprise for many reasons, not the least of which is that the new National Science Foundation feels much more comfortable with this model of science education in museums than it did with uh, Bradford Washburn's so-called unfortunately named exposure model (laughs) of, of science education, right? It's not enough to just look and kind of take it in, but you really need to kind of get your hands in there and you need to take that switch on the Brine Shrimp Ballet, which was (laughs) an exhibit that was designed to show phototropism in the movement of these, uh, what are colloquially colloquially called uh, sea monkeys, right? You need to get in there and you need to flip the switch and see what the animals do. And it's an incredibly challenging um, concept for a museum. But then when you filter it back down, and and again, kind of coming back to this notion of practice, it's an incredibly challenging notion for exhibit designers, right? Because in the case of the Brian Shrimp Ballet, anyone who's been to uh, a museum with a child, uh, whenever there's a uh, push button, what do they do? They flip it, they flip it again, they flip it the other way, right? So what was happening with the brine shrimp is that they were becoming acclimated. And so instead of moving in this lovely swirl that they were designed to move in, going from light to light, they just kind of sat there (laughs) in the middle. And so it's what it ends up being is an experiment for the visitor, but also an experiment for the exhibit designer. So kind of uh, how do we make this work? Well, we have to keep replacing the brine shrimp, right? And I think and, that's where biology also comes in too. Yes, I mean, it's really easy to keep replacing the nail or keep replacing, you know, something, a non-live object. But this is, I mean, one of the themes of the book is that displaying life is incredibly hard. It's expensive and it's really fraught with ethical challenges. And so, you know, how do you keep resupplying the visitors with things to experiment on without 
you know, delving into unpleasant or just really awful kind of elements. And this is, I think, where the cockroach surgery. <laughs> or the, yeah, the, uh, the grasshopper. The grasshopper. Yeah, the gra- yeah, yeah. Cockroach. I'm thinking about Frank Lutz. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I know. Grasshoppers. And Karen, do you want to talk? Uh, you should you should tell about this because this yeah, is the no, thing I mean, you found and it's great. It, uh, one of the things we talked about early in the process is really wanting to kind of capture all of the uh, all of the stakeholders in this process. And certainly it's one thing for designers and, and museum directors to talk about the public, but uh, publics uh, push back and they have their own views and they have their own opinions and their own way of interacting with things. And so in the case of the, uh, the grasshopper exhibit, the Watchful Grasshopper, there's a definite backstory there in terms of the amount of uh, effort that it took to, you know, uh, grasshoppers were agricultural pests at the time in California. They had to get a special permit to breed grasshoppers in order to even have them for the exhibit. They had to train people in grasshopper surgery uh, and they get the whole thing going. And uh, visitors, what I found is a trove of correspondence between Oppenheimer and visitors writing to him saying, what is this crazy exhibit? I hate it. It looks like you're torturing a grasshopper. <laughs> under yeah. glass why is this in the museum and so really you it, it's a it was a great set of documents because so rarely do you get that kind of back and forth between what the museum thinks it's doing and what the public or what members of the public are thinking about what's going on and kind of how that gets negotiated back and forth and ultimately it resulted in the watchful grasshopper being taken down because no matter how much Frank Oppenheimer tried to explain no this is a display that's about uh, the ways in which the grasshopper processes the neural signal of seeing your hand move across the plexiglass, no matter how many different ways, no matter what signage. Um, there were visitors that were saying, this isn't about that. This is about the way that science tortures animals and uh, science has control in this uh, display in a way that really doesn't feel organic to the way I understand the natural world. So it's not it something was, I want to see. It was it captured, I think, so nicely, not just the museum dynamic, all, but I mean, you know, it was the 60s, right? Like, I mean, it's the 60s in action where people are pushing back against the scientists for the first time and they're demanding yeah. a seat at the table in terms of what goes on in the museum and the ethics of treatment in the museum. And, you know, and Oppenheimer's ready for that. He's, he's, and yet he's surprised by it because I think he was trained um, to believe that, you know, he optimistically thought that science was apolitical in a lot of ways. Well, which is a, <laughs> so you know, ironic for him, right? Yeah. I mean, we talk about the way in which his response to uh, sort of uh, McCarthy era persecution for his communist views and sort of being run out of science for that, rather than just sort of take from that, oh, science is political, he instead doubles down into this kind of very naive position about, uh, you know, science is a process that if we all follow it will lead to greater and greater democracy, greater engagement. And, you know, so, I mean, one of the things, one of the challenges of trying to use the wide angle lens at the same time that we're using these anecdotes was trying to capture these actors in all of their complexity. So, Frank Oppenheimer is a person who devises or or commits to this model of science education in a museum that completely transforms 
interactivity and display at the same time that he had blind spots. For instance, he really didn't want to include anything political. So if you have an exhibit about grasshoppers and their environment, for an example, you might also talk about, you know, agriculture and the politics of agriculture. But this was something that Frank Oppenheimer said, no, we don't want to talk about this because this is going to politicize science. So he had these, he had these kind of blind spots and much, much as we all do, much as every historical actor does. And so we're kind of trying to capture the complexity of him in that moment at the same time that we're trying to acknowledge that he made this tremendous contribution to um, sort of the, the revolutionizing of museum display. Yeah. And I think that was the, I mean, the complexity and then the various communities because, you know, you have visitors and you ha- there are so many stakeholders in a museum and seeing how somebody who's a hero in one set of communities, whether it's, you know, philanthropists or scientists, and then is deplored by, you know, like all of these uh, sort of liberal activists are like, this is terrible. How can you not talk about the pollution? How can you not talk about, you know, animal abuse? And and so getting to see the dialogue between um, groups that wouldn't necessarily be running across one another's path, that was also something that was a lot of fun to trace. Yeah, and I think in terms of the actors to the the ways in which, you know, you can see as a historian things that they couldn't see. So it's sort of um, being able to acknowledge their perspective and kind of how they came to their perspective in, in the moment, but also stepping back uh, and, for instance, being able to identify the places where there could have been potential collaborations, but but it fell, fell apart. Right. For instance, yeah. Carlos Cummings, um, you know, no one more than Carlos Cummings at Buffalo wanted to see a comprehensive display of the whole range of human knowledge in a museum more. So yeah. in some ways, he's he's as committed to that as many of the scientists, but, you know, sort of talking behind his back in these, in letters about, you know, scientists having a PhD complex and why can't they just get over themselves? And, and you know, at the same time that you have someone like Waldo Schmidt at the Smithsonian uh, talking about how he would love to see the displays look better because the displays are a way of marketing research at the same time that then you see in the letter of John Englum and others, you know, curators are refusing to come on expeditions with them because they just see this as not a good use of their time. They want to be doing research. And so it, it is kind of a, um, with Oppenheimer, as with others, the complexity comes down to kind of um, the ways in which the moments intersect and become kind of productive co- collaborations and, and move the process forward. At the same time, Carla, you mentioned there's a profoundly cyclical nature to this. I mean, yeah. I think one of the um, one of the things I consider a great compliment is when a museum person reads this book and says, "I recognize this. This looks yeah. really familiar." It's, it's a compliment. At the same time, that was an enormous challenge. Yes. writing it because I remember, like, you know, we redrafted this thing like three or four times, and I remember at one point we were like, every chapter is exactly the same. <laughs> Like different stories, same argument. Um, and I don't think that's the, I, at least I hope that's not the case with the end project or process yeah. or a product. But you know, you do like the, you know people have the same argument over and over and over again. <laughs> 
And maybe this gets us into chapter seven. Carla. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So exactly. <laughs> um, so very, very, very briefly, um, chapter seven actually takes us up to the 21st century. And this chapter considers the ways that American museums um, in particular dealt with financial crises. So that's a theme that we haven't talked you know, a whole lot about, but that also is a theme that recurs throughout the chapters of the book. So the theme of resources and economy and finances and how those kinds of concerns um, and resources are, you know, scarcities thereof are also shaping what's going on. So increasingly, as this is happening from 1976 to 2005, at least in the time period that the chapter charts, museums and science centers are turning to corporate sponsorship, right? And so the chapter um, gives us lots of examples of this, the Orkin Insect Zoo, um, etc., and talks about some of the ways that um, corporate sponsorship is also generating debates and is shaping um, cultures of museums. Museum display. Now, one of the really interesting thing, uh, many interesting things are happening here, right? Um, there are new technologies that are being added to museum displays, so right. wave machines, and sort of really interesting um, history of technology stuff. There's also increasingly an embrace of developmental psychology in exhibit design, right? So, the sort of the science of uh, developmental psychology is shaping how some of these things are looking. And you also, um, both of you, look finally at the rise of edutainment. That's it's probably a term that any of us who is employed in the university right now um, <laughs> is very familiar with, right? <laughs> Edutainment. Um, so here, you know, IMAX and Jurassic Park Dino Exhibit, etc. Um, and you, you look at the ways that this impacts research also at museums. So maybe I'll ask... Um, Karen, if you would speak a little bit to um, maybe this last part, sort of what is this changing corporate culture of uh, museum, you know, exhibit culture and research culture at museums in this last part of the book doing most profoundly to transform what's happening in terms of display and research? So, sure. So we call the chapter from diversity to standardization. And one of the dynamics we're trying to capture there is that the corporate culture is, even though there was a kind of split, uh, a more clear split between more natural history uh, museums that paid more attention to collections, took NSF money for systematics, for, for instance, in the post-war period, rather than taking it as Frank Oppenheimer did uh, for creating displays. Um, what happens as a result of the corporatization is that – and I, I guess I should say one of the reasons that corporatization uh, happens and has such an effect is that – and this is where the U.S. scene kind of differs – is that the U.S. museums are profoundly underfunded compared to their uh, European counterparts. Now, I know European counterpart people who will listen to this will say, well, we're not terribly well-funded either, but <laughs> sort of commitment It's all to, relative. <laughs> yeah, like a commitment to a, a public culture of museums – uh, is something that's that's really evolving even uh, in the later stages of what we're talking about into today. And so they're profoundly underfunded. They take more and more, not just money from corporations, but also um, they themselves become kind of corporate entities where they're thinking about kind of shareholders and how can we get the best bang uh, for our buck. So they start doing things like um, opening up exhibit halls for, uh, for weddings and banquets and meetings and um, founding cafes, the museum shop becomes a really important um, uh, strain of kind of, of common uh, 
common usage among all these different types of museums. So while you have diversification still that's, that persists between the natural history museums and the science centers, uh, we see the, the influence of the corporate culture as kind of leading to uh, a level of standardization of strategies because without more public money uh, and without doing things like raising admission fees, which none of them really want to do because they want to keep the visitors coming, um, they they need strategies to uh, to kind of build their revenue base. And so these strategies become more standardized, kind of culminating in the blockbuster exhibit, which really comes from the art museum. Right, Victoria? The, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, one of the things that I, I think both of us found fascinating, because I think, you know, it's very easy to fall into the trap of, oh, you know, scientists get trampled by blockbusters. But, but it's not that at all. Scientists are very smart about it and also very committed to edu- – I mean, in museums, they're often very committed to educating the public. So they do a lot of really interesting things to sort of exploit the blockbuster system. And I think the Jurassic Park is example is, is a good one here where, you know, the Dinosaur Society and a whole group of paleontologists basically go to Spielberg and are like, we want to do this. We want you to put up, you know, to let us take all these props and create a blockbuster exhibit where most of the proceeds goes to paleontological research. And so they set up this traveling exhibit, which becomes a huge, I mean, it's, it's as big as the movie itself. Well, not quite as big as the movie itself, but I mean, it's certainly in the museum world. Um, I mean, it, it attracts millions and millions of people. And it's interesting because, of course, at every stage, they'll have something from the movie and then they'll have a large label debunking it. And then they'll trot out, you know, every museum trots out to, trots out its own paleontological specimens to sort of show what their scientists have been doing or when they put Sue on display. I mean, it's this blockbuster event and the scientists themselves, they put the paleontologists on display. They create a big glass window and you can go and you can watch watch the paleontologists at work. And it doesn't completely ameliorate, um, you know, the, the financial crisis that a lot of these researchers are having to suffer through, but it really helps quite a bit. Um, so there are interesting alliances that end up getting forged um, in order for everybody to sort of accomplish a host of goals and and in, in the instance of scientists to make sure that their research continues to get funded in an age that it is decidedly unfriendly to it. Well, speaking of forging interesting alliances um, to accomplish a host of goals, um, I have to thank the two of you for doing that to produce this book uh, because it's really been, we're now at the um, end of our hour, but it's really been been such a pleasure to talk with the two of you. And I think this has been a model not only of how to write a great history book, and it's just been, I think, for me, fascinating to talk with you both, but it's also really encouraging and enlightening and frankly inspiring to um, witness the product and really, you know, hear about the process of what it can look like to do collaborative work um, as historians. So thank you both uh, profoundly for spending the time to talk about this. Now, I know um, we have there's a ton of material in the book, right, that we haven't had a chance to talk about. And this can't possibly be a substitute for reading the book itself. But is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but you that you'd like to mention for listeners? And maybe, um, Victoria, we'll start with you. 
Uh, wow. Karen, can I pun <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah. And there doesn't have to be, you know, but no, I'm not thinking uh, I'm sort of still stuck on the last thing I was saying a little oh, bit sure. too, and thinking about kind of audiences for the book. I know this was something that, um, you know, when we started the conversation and talking about the collaboration, we saw that as one of the goals of the collaboration. And I think, um, one of the things that we thought was very productive, but also struggled with somewhat is kind of how to write this history in a way that it would make sense to all the different audiences that may read it. And I think um, in particular, uh, we felt a responsibility to those people working in museums today. Because it's not so much that, uh, you know, you're, you're telling their history, but it's also sort of history as a resource for kind of what the possibilities were, what they can be. Um, and really trying to kind of tell this cyclical and somewhat messy and complicated story in a way that um, the the existence of these themes, you know, one of the things we try to say in chapter seven is that there are, there are so many of these things still happening today. The debate over what a museum is, what a science museum, what a natural history museum is not settled. Um, but that's a tremendous opportunity in a way too, is kind of what we're trying to get across because there are all these possibilities that are still, you know, possibly were explored and are not yet fully um, finalized or, you know, possibilities that uh, wonderful people working in museums haven't yet thought of. So I think um, I think it'd be interesting, and, and I know uh, it's still pretty early in the process, but I know both Victoria and I are very interested to hear back from readers yeah. about kind of how, um, how this resonated or didn't resonate for them. I think that's right. So now that the book is out, and congratulations to the both of you, what's next for you? Um, Victoria, what are you working on now? Um, so, uh, I am moving from one educational institution to another. I'm looking at the history of visual media in American classrooms and, uh, exploring all of the controversies that accompanied the introduction of picturing technologies, um, into American classrooms. So, I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm writing a prehistory of like MOOCs and kind of compute like smart boards um but uh it's been it's been really fun to move I, I mean and i got interested in it because one of the things that we were finding is that there were incredible links between museums and schools museums were providing schools with all of this visual technology equipment you know all the slides and stereopticons and movies i mean you know public schools would send thousands of kids to the museum throughout the 20s um, to go watch movies that they would use in classes. Um, and because schools, you know, film was still flammable and schools couldn't afford the equipment, so they would go to the museum and then they'd come home or come back to the classroom and discuss it. So I'm looking again at the sort of the politics surrounding visual representations of knowledge um, and learning visually um, and the tensions and confusions, I think, uh, around uh, that kind of pedagogy. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's what I'm up to. Awesome. Karen, what are you working on these days? And I'm, uh, I'm kind of also uh, jumping off from the point of science education, but taking it in a different direction. I, I am interested in the uses of 
history of science and science education. And I come at that in part from the kinds of stories that we saw in which this was happening or not happening in historical science museums, but also as a parent of teenagers, having just gone through kind of the, the science education system in Virginia, the standards of learning are charming, charmingly called the SOLs. <laughs> so, um, but I know they're, they're sort of national counter counterparts uh, in the core, right? The common core. And I'm just interested in looking at kind of practical applications for ways in which history of science can inform uh, science education. And really beyond that, it's still in kind of the murky pre-discovery phases. I feel, um, once again, like I felt when I started this book, uh, tremendously humbled at what I don't know Mm -hmm. (laughs) about science education. So I'm kind of trying to get a little bit more up to speed on how that looks um, from a practitioner's perspective and uh, and then, you know, sort of somehow synthesize that with kind of what I know. Um, there are lots of wonderful historians of science that are working in this field, too. So um, I don't know where that goes, but that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> well, best of luck to both of you on what sound like fantastic projects at various stages. And thank you again. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on an awesome book. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks so much, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time.